but we know that in this industry, you win if you have product. If you don't, they might love your product and it might fit great and it might be comfortable, but you know what? If you have to protect your employee, you're picking up the phone and calling somebody else because you have to make sure that your company is in compliance and that your person is safe. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the Network Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello, welcome to The Uniformer. I'm Rick Levine, president of the NAUMD, and I am thrilled to have Scott Correo with us today. And this is going to be a, a great conversation because Scott loves to improvise as much as I do, I think. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate the invitation. You're welcome. So Scott is the president of Reflective Apparel. And I'd like to typically ask, what does the president of Reflective Apparel do throughout the year? And you can give the, the intro of what Reflective Apparel does if it's not somewhat obvious from the name of the company. Right. Yeah. Our SEO is pretty darn good with a company like <laughs> Reflective Apparel. But again, thanks for being here. Yeah. Reflective Apparel is a company that's been in business for about 27 years now. Started off manufacturing uh, apparel uniforms really for state DOTs. Since then, it's morphed into doing a lot of uniforms and really with a, a strong focus focus on ANSI, high visibility, but also just keeping people visible, right? Just even with uniforms, making sure they stand out. Um, you, you joke, what a, as a president, what do I do? We're a, a, a bit of a, we're a smaller organization than some. And I, I remember when I took this role over and was meeting with a board of directors where we're private equity owned, they said, well, it's a smaller company. You're used to being part of a $36 billion company. You may be doing a lot of other stuff like taking out the trash. And they were exaggerating though. On my first day there, when I, when they showed me my office, the first thing I noticed was a trash can needed emptied. And, and that's what I did. Yeah. It's it, it, you wear multiple hats as everybody who has been part of a smaller org knows, but um, overall, Rick, I'd say I was, I've been thinking about this, some of the things that the, the president would do with the org. And I think I, I steer a lot of the strategic direction, mm -hmm. setting long-term vision, defining achievable goals, strategizing ways to achieve them. I pride provide leadership to an exceptional team that I have. I'm assuring that each member of the company is aligned with what the company goals are. Financial stewardship is a big part of what I do. And I think a lot of folks in my role, overseeing the financial health, managing budgets, monitoring expenses, making systematic decisions to guarantee growth, business development, collaborating with production team. That's a, a big part of what we do. And it's a part that I really enjoy is seeing the innovation, seeing what they're working on, seeing what we're looking at doing. And then I think I, I really help shape the brand's narrative. So the brand image, market presence, a lot of that is under my watch and oversee market strategies, effective communication. I, I think pretty much that's a big part of it, right? Handling stakeholder relations, engaging with investors, customers, suppliers, regulatory bodies, any of the things that we deal with, it's, I've always thought as a, as the leader in any capacity, whether you're a sales leader or the or CEO president of a company, your role is to help keep all the stuff off of your team so they can focus on what they need to focus on. And that's what I always try to do. 
I really like that answer because not only did you give all of the typical MBA business book phrases <laughs> of support our stakeholders and oversee people and inspire people and right and I love all of that and it came out of you so easily Scott that you must be a sophisticated leader, I assume. But then at the same time, you're like, yeah, but by the way, if the trash needs to be taken out, I take out the trash. I don't have that MBA. I consider myself a sales leader. I consider myself honestly a salesperson. Uh -huh. That's always been my strength. I'm a sales CEO. You know, that when you think of sales focused, customer focused, that's how I lead. And it was always what I was taught by good leaders is keep the stuff off of your team so they can do what they're good at. And I would say the way my grandfather used to say, I would say that I got my MBA, quote unquote, but it was school of hard knocks. It was on the job. Yeah. And there's a big, there's a big, I'm not bashing MBAs, right? Or supporting MBAs. There's actually a big movement towards, back towards, mm -hmm. not necessarily the education. I had one CEO interviewed and we were talking about recruiting and hiring. And he goes, you know what, Rick? I like to hire English majors. He's, they know they're taught to think because the rest of the stuff we can teach them. But I need people who know mm -hmm. how to think. Right, right. No, and that's it. I, I will, I always tell everybody when we're sitting in a meeting and if I'm sitting in a, we do our staff meetings and those people sitting around the table are so much smarter than me, but that's what I want, right? I want a, a VP of operations who understands operations better than anybody in the market, right? And he comes from the industry and he comes from the Oxford Lululemon duck hat. I want a VP of strategic and of accounts who has been in this business for 30 years and knows everything about it. I want, I want people that are so much smarter than me in this industry. And then I want to take care of all that other stuff and keep it off of them to let the company grow and be successful. Yeah. I, I to your point, yeah, I'm not an MBA, not the smartest guy in the office. My job is to bring the smartest people in to make, make us successful. I love that. I don't know if I'm crediting the right person. Was it Jobs, Steve Jobs, or somebody that said, don't hire smart people and then tell them what to do? Yeah, I think it was. I, I know that there was a, I don't know how prevalent the culture still remains. I spent 20 some years with 3M, but even McKnight, there's the McKnight principles. And his idea was you bring somebody in, you, you let them make mistakes, right? Because that's how they're going to learn. Don't punish somebody for making a mistake, trying to do something, trying to fix something, trying to make something new. And I think that is the secret to a company growing and becoming better. Very interesting. And the 3M was that $36 billion company you mentioned at the, uh, at the onset. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I know absolutely. from your bio that you spent a decade or more at 3M in a sales role. What's interesting anecdotally, one of the things about 3M is they literally have it as part of their culture, a high percentage of their products each year have to be quote unquote new. So right, right. did all of that influence like how you approached reflective apparel when you came on board as a sales CEO, which you proclaimed mm -hmm. you are, that's a very different energy than a production CEO come up out of the factory floor or right. a designer CEO, right? No, I know everything there is about designing apparel and rose the ranks that way. It's, right. Or CFO it, is a common, right? You come from the financial side of it. So right. what's the... Is there a, a nuance to being a sales CEO and maybe the lessons from 3M that you, that are helping you with your vision for reflective apparel? Because it has been quite a shift from a bit of an old school company to what Absolutely. you're now building. 
Yeah, I, I think you take I think you take both both the good and the bad that you've learned from an organization and from leaders you've had in the past. I have had my share of bad experiences with large company. I've had my share of good experiences, right? It's going to work is going to work each day. You're going to run into hardships and issues and problems. I would say that 3M was very focused on new products. That's how they drove. And the idea was to drive innovation. At the same time, (laughs) I remember an initiative they had at one year that was, and each year there was a new type of initiative and it was called customer first. That was the initiative, right? You went to every one of your meetings and every sales rep from every division, whether you were nanotechnology or personal safety division, which I was in that and Scotchlight or abrasives, adhesives, and you'd get together for these meetings. And the initiative was customer first, customer first. We have to put the customer first. And the salespeople in the room would sit there and roll their eyes and say, wow, upper management is finally getting it. Salespeople understand that the customer comes first. They're the front line of any organization. If you're going to get upset with somebody, whether you're walking into Best Buy or you're talking to a sales rep that's walking in your door, it's because the sales rep is arrogant, has had a bad day, isn't paying attention to you, isn't listening to you, isn't hearing what you're actually asking for. Other folks in an industry might be looking at a lot of other things. They're looking at the numbers. Why isn't the growth there? We just developed this phenomenal product. Why isn't anybody buying it? The customer, the the sales rep might be saying, gosh, it's because they're not asking for it. You're not listening to the customer. So I would have to say the most of what has shaped me from being part of a company like 3M and previous to that, the the company Aero Technologies that was acquired by them is that as a sales rep, I directly interacted with customers. I understood their needs. I asked what their needs were, their preferences, their pain points, what kept them awake at night. I think all of these experiences ingrained a very customer-centric approach to my vision of where I wanted Reflective Apparel to go. Um, It's important to come up with new products, but not if the new product isn't something the customer's looking for, right? Uh, right. They've got to come to you and say, we have a problem. We need this fixed. It's keeping me awake. What can you do about it? And that's where you can bring value to your customer. I, I gained leadership skills. I had some very good leaders there. I was in the safety division. I've been in the safety industry previous to COVID. Not too many people knew what PPE meant. Right. And then that became, but because of that and that safety quality focus that I was part of for so many years, that's been big for me with the ANSI side of it. And then you, as a sales leader, you really look at market insights a good bit. What's going good? What's not? What's What are the trends? Where's the competition going? What's your consumer behavior? I think having that finger on the pulse of the market at a smaller org, especially, but when you're more of a sales focused CEO, that the only reason you are in business is because of that customer. Hmm. It's not the spreadsheet in front of you. It's not OPEX is your operating expenses are here or where's your EBITDA today. It's what does the customer want? How can I help the customer and how can I get that customer to come back to us and trust us? So I think that's been the big the big thing for me, what I learned at my previous roles and how it's helped affect the vision of where I believe reflective apparel needs to go. I mean, do you think that leaders who come from other departments besides sales can have that customer focus and empathy? Or do you think that because you come out of sales, that was uh, an advantage? No, that's a 
Great question. And I don't and I don't mean to exclude that. I've had phenomenal leaders. I know many other people have. I know there's a there's competitors of ours and folks we work with that that the leader is not a salesperson and they're fantastic. Right. But they're smart enough to make sure that they're focusing on the right thing by bringing those people in their to their company to focus on things like the customer. Mm. No, I, you know, many of the leaders at 3M were, they had more initials at the end of their name than you can shake a stick at, right? Doctor of chemistry and physiology. And I'll tell you what, they were fantastic leaders because they got it. They understood it. What they were looking at was important, but putting people in the right place that knew what needed to be done was also very important. No, I, I, I don't mean that just, I don't mean that just a salesperson or a sales leader can be good as uh, can be a good CEO. But I think you need to make sure you have those type of people in the organization to make sure you are putting that customer first. Agreed. And I wasn't implying that's what you were saying. What's mm-hmm. interesting, I was just wondering, I started to think about what is the empathy uh, metric, right? And what what more likely trains a good leader to be empathetic to the customer than other positions And certainly, I would think product development can also, if you're a good product developer, you're meeting with the customers as well, hopefully, and saying Uh what's working and what isn't working. Why didn't this change help you? We thought it was going to. We even discussed it a year ago, but yet it doesn't seem to be having the effect that we all thought it would. So it has to be iterative, no Uh matter what the what the the question at hand, the specification that's up for modification. No, I, you're absolutely right. I think another part of this, thinking about it, and I mentioned that you sometimes, you encounter, I think in, it, it's not just at large organizations, it's anywhere. Whether you're in sales or your customer service or you're working in the plant or, or whatever you do, you encounter instances of poor leadership and you witness flawed decisions from your superiors. A few organizations that I've been a part of, and I'm just using this experience, these become pivotal learning experiences by shaping what you want to do. And, and I think if you look at them right, and, and you'll hear people say all the time, there's no right, there's no bad experience or everything's a learning experience. Let's put it that way, right? Because you witness poor decisions from a maybe a lack of thorough analysis and form decision making. You start to understand the impact of how that affects the culture of an organization. You understand that, man, these groups aren't, these folks aren't being real transparent with us. They're not being, they're not cultivating this positive feeling of, I'm not saying a family, but just a a single vision. And they're out for just me. You can see this a lot with folks where they have one eye on the job that they have and their next eye on the next job that they want. They're not focusing on what they can do right now to affect positive change. And so when you take all of that, you can say to yourself, that used to really irritate me. Do I want to do that? Or do I want to do what? And sometimes it's easy to slip into that. It really is. And you can see why people do it. But you have to realize, how am I going to be more successful? I'm going to be more successful if I surround myself with people who are successful. If I surround myself with people who are loyal to me because they know I'm looking out for them. And by doing that, they're going to help this company become better than it ever was before. And those are some other aspects, I think, that really add to make a really good leader in any organization. And you have that, you can have that type of a, a transformation, whether you're one of those initials at the end of your name, like I've mentioned, or you're just a 
you're just a sales guy from originally from Cleveland, Ohio, that, that was grown up all over the place selling for a bunch of different companies. I think you can, I, I think you can take those bad experiences and turn them into something positive. Love that. Very interesting. Hey, so you started to talk a little bit about product. I want to uh, move to another thought that I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about, which is I, I had never been to the A plus A show in Germany, uh, and I had the opportunity uh, in 2023 to attend that show. It's mind-blowing. It was 1,200 exhibitors and hundreds of them, not some of them, hundreds of them were workwear right? Because the theme of the show is workplace safety. So of course, workwear is this huge part of it. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because is is I really noticed that there's this uh, uh, distinction between what European countries are doing in the styles of workwear, and in particular, what the high-vis color blocks are, what mm-hmm. the... We, we are... I don't want to say a little bit of a rut with how high viz has potentially looked over the past 20 years, and you'd know better about this than I would, but but what in Europe is it, it borders on these fashion items like, okay, yes, they're operating, just to use a cliche, a jackhammer, but this sort of coverall that they're wearing has three different color blocks and it has this interesting right. angles to it and there's trim and there's right. How do you balance that? And is that even something that North American customers are interested in? Is that a, a, a trend that we might see coming to North America? Cause a lot of times we push and pull from European styles. And so I'm just curious how you balance all of that as a company between fashion versus function, if you will. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great, that's a great question. I, I think it's something that we we talk about a lot internally. I, I know my competitors are talking the same thing. Um, coming from the, the safety industry and standards themselves out of Europe are much more advanced, I'd say, than they are in the U.S. when it comes to a lot of, when you look at uh, ANSI CSA standards in Canada, can, Canadian standards tend to be a little bit more stringent than the U.S. as well. Um, but you look at some of the European standards and they are a little bit more robust. But when you look at some of the products, um, to your point, you're right. You're like, whoa, is that even, would that even pass CNC? That looks really cool. I used to tease, and, and it's in this industry, a lot of people, if you're wearing an ANSI visibility t-shirt or vest, you're not wearing it because you are just going to be the talk of the town and it's the best looking outfit in the world. You're using it to save your life, right? You're using it. You can say that you're using because a government is mandating, but we have determined and we know that fluorescent orange and fluorescent yellow lime and to a degree, the red that we now approve, that that helps you stand out. And then you add reflective trim and with a specific amount of trim, whether it's an extra small or an 8X, you have to have certain amount of all this fluorescent background and trim. We know this. We know it's going to save lives, especially in dim, low lighting, dark areas. But you also know that people like to wear what looks good, right? When I was a safety salesman, we would sell safety glasses. And if you look at safety glasses now and you were, I've never been to, to the show, the A plus A, love to go, never had an opportunity to. I think the NSC was the same time this year. And I had a couple meetings I had to be at. But when you look at, say you go by a booth where somebody sells safety glasses, they look like fashionable glasses, Right. 
years ago, safety glasses, we used to call them in the military. A lot of folks I knew who were in the military called them BCGs. They called them birth control glasses, right? They were ugly looking. They were, I remember my dad was a machine rebuilder <laughs> and the glasses that he would give me when I was young, working with him in the garage were, they were ugly. And, and when you have something that's not comfortable or doesn't look good, you put them on when the supervisor's there. And then as soon as that supervisor walks away, you pull them both up over your head. And that's when something gets in your eye, right? Same thing with high vis. Somebody's around, you're wearing it because the boss is there. But have I gotten hurt before? No. Do I really need it now? Probably not. And then unfortunately, accidents happen. But you do want to have comfort. That's got to be comfortable for somebody to wear. It has to be functional. But you're right. It has to look good. And the influence, I think, on the fashion on workwear has been a noticeable trend shift globally, most especially in European workwear. But we're starting to see it more and more in the U.S. If you look at some of our line and some of our competitors' lines, change is coming. You're right to a degree. And we have some styles of shirts and coats that some of our customers buy that they've been buying for 15 years, mm. right? Because people become a creature of habit. But, but this is going to happen more and more, especially as a younger generation comes in, right? We safety directors that I used to deal with when I was a sales rep were, they were a little older than me and they were now everybody coming in is younger than me and they don't want what their dad or grandfather wore. Mm. They want something that looks good. And I task all of the uniform and the ANSI safety workwear industries to, we've got to do that. We've got to come up with what people want, right? We can't just be status quo. We've got, because somebody will do it. If we don't, and that's been one of our things, our pushes is to do that. We've been meeting with a lot of different groups, a lot of conferences to ask people, what do you want? What do you want out of the, the fabric? What do you want out of the look? And then we go back with our designers to figure out, okay, how do we make this work for them? So you're right. It's, it's big in Europe and it's coming here to us. As a bigger guy, I don't get pants anymore that don't have stretch. Is that something that, that you find customers are asking for as an example? <laughs> I think stretch is definitely something that everybody wants in most material. Hmm. If you think about it to your degree, I'm 53 and I'm a bigger guy too than I was. I don't have the waist size I had 20 years ago. And you tend to buy your Levi's and Lee's if you're wearing jeans that have that stretch material. But so does most all of the even your elite, a lot of your performance apparel that you're wearing, even as a button-down shirt, has a four-way stretch, has a give. That's very important, even with reflective, because if you think about it, when you're wearing, when you're wearing an ANSI visibility safety apparel garment, and it has reflective on it, that reflective usually doesn't stretch, right? You, your material may four ways, but if you're wearing this banded down your chest or around your arms, and you've got bigger arms. That's uncomfortable for a lot of folks. So you're also tasked with all the accoutrements that go onto the gear to make sure that those also offer that flexibility and stretch as well as lasting so they can be washed multiple times, whether it's a home wash or a, a rental product. So yeah, you're right. We have, we've, one of the things we're working on now, Rick, actually to your point is material that gives more stretch. It's a little bit more cooling. I don't know too many people who come home anymore and throw on a cotton t-shirt. Most people I talk to are wearing some type of a, an Under Armour type, Nike type performance apparel type gear. These workers out there, we, we consider these people professional athletes. 
So why shouldn't they be wearing the same exact thing as everybody else is wearing every day? They're dealing with some hot temperatures, heavy, hard work. We should be giving them the same thing that they're able to get when you walk into a retail store. So you're spot on in the, on what's happening in the market. Do you, do you sell outside of North America? We no, we do not. We okay. right now we're just in the U S and parts of Canada, but I know that you're manufacturing both internationally and domestically. Absolutely. Yeah, we do. As most folks in, in our industry do you manufacture a lot of product in China, yep. which can be a concern at times with what's going on in the globally, the geopolitical tensions, trade issues that are happening, the issues with we saw it when COVID hit. We still see it now at the Panama Canal having stuff shipped in. But China's always had very good looms. They've had very good, very good mills. So you get yeah. good product there. We've shifted a lot of product to to parts of Africa. Oh, really? Well. Yeah. Wow. So we've been able to find some really good manufacturing there. We do some stuff in Latin America. And then we, of course, do a lot of our, our decorating and enhancements right here in the Atlanta area as well. But also some of the actual finished goods you're making here? No, as, well? as of right now, we're working with a few folks to do that. But as of right now, we're not at this time with the current product line that we have. We're not manufacturing a final good here in the U.S. Okay. All right. Wasn't sure about that. And you mentioned the the pandemic and all of that. And so many of us saw either you fell off a cliff if you were serving the hospitality industry, or I imagine since you were already in the PPE category that your operations may have even ticked up during portions of the pandemic. But one of the things that I just hear from so many of our network members is that 2022 was great and 2023 has just been phenomenal. And so I'm curious what you're seeing and or if those on those ongoing supply chain issues that you mentioned, have those played a role in affecting sales or being able to have the inventory that, that we want? I know I'm throwing a lot of random things at you all at once. No, Another thing that I, I know about your company, though, is that you do pride yourself on just having a very deep inventory, right? A lot of people, a lot of companies got more in tune with a more of a just in time <laughs> and the pandemic really messed them up. Right. right. So they were right. really screwed either in the cash position or in, you know, that they, they just couldn't get the materials, even if they had the cash to throw at it, but you've got, you know, a, a lot of inventory on hand. So how are you balancing that and how has business been? Yeah, I'd agree that I think this has been probably the past two years have been some of the best years we've had. We've had record quarters both last year and this year. Uh, COVID was tough for us. Yes, we're in the safety industry, but we still are a an apparel and uniform organization. And where PPE ticked upwards was the sanitizers, the respiratory products and such. Unfortunately, in our industry, and I think for not only reflective apparel, but a lot of our competitors, we ended up taking a back seat at times to budgets. Yes, these folks need to have a new uniform or a new shirt or, or such, but we just don't want to spend the money on that right now because we still can see fluorescent or we still see reflective. We're going to hold off another year mm. or where we might have seen a big shift was instead of let's buy everybody new uniforms, let's buy everybody vests that are either class two or class three that 
We know they're compliant, but we're not spending as much money right now. So it was a tough year. And yes, I had a lot of inventory that year. We do. Reflective Apparel has always been under the, and really thanks to the, our, our, the private equity company, the board of directors that, that owns us is phenomenal, right? I would, I could see a lot of pushback from some companies, most of them. And I come from a just in time type of company, but we know that in this industry, you win if you have product, Hmm. right? If you don't, they're going to, they might love your product and it might fit great and it might be comfortable, but you know what? If you have to protect your employee, you're picking up the phone and calling somebody else to get something because you have to make sure that your company is in compliance and that your person is safe. So we have to make sure we have the product. Most of our products go from an extra small all the way up to an 8XL. And we do that not on every single product style, but on the majority of them. And we do it because it, it why split up at that program for somebody? You might buy X amount for the, your team, and then you have a couple folks that are a little bit larger and you buy some bigger outfits for. We want to make sure we can take care of everybody, have it. It's been great for us also because some of the times folks will come to us for that larger size and find out, wow, this is, they're easy to deal with. It's comfortable. And so we'll get all their business that way. It, it is a complex issue at times to have that type of stock, but we do want to make sure that we have it for our customers. They Trying that, to have the 6XL and above in on the shelf. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you, if, if we go to the website right now and, and you pull up a product and you look through and you see a 6, 7 or 8XL in there, I can almost with 99.9% confidence guarantee that product is in our, our shop in Marietta, Georgia. Because I was just talking with someone who's in kind of a technology sizing space the other day, uh, and we were discussing how companies are dealing with a, for some of these larger sizes, that it's more convenient for them than to manufacture on demand, right? Mm -hmm. Because they can get that blazer or that shirt produced in just a couple of days, and so they don't have to stock necessarily the equivalent of that 10x garment, but that's a big commitment for you guys to get. Now, granted, you don't need a thousand dozen, right? Eight <laughs> XL. You're exactly right. right. You're exactly right. We, but we've noticed again that, especially in the U.S., and we hear this all the time, the population is not really getting smaller. Right. We we. I try every morning. I wake up, Rick, with the intentions of this is the day I'm losing weight. By nine thirty, I've lost that. Right. Mm. I boom. I. Darn it, I ate that donut I shouldn't have eaten that was sitting in my office. But I mean, it, we, we run into that here in the U.S. So we're getting more and more folks that do need to have a larger size. You're right. I don't have I don't have 20,000 X of a of course not. bomber jacket. Right. But what we do know is if you need to get your employee protected, you hire somebody new, you have to keep them safe. What are you going to do if there's if it's going to take you? A week, sometimes with uniforms, it's what takes three or four months. You can build stuff out if depending where you're bringing it in. What do you do in between that? How do you protect that person? So we want to make sure that we have stuff in stock to protect everybody for all of our customers. That's the main reason we do that. And we've been successful with it. It's helped us. It's helped give us a good name in the marketplace. And I completely understand folks that don't do that. It, it, It is a it's an investment, but it's something we find that it's worked well for us and for our customers. So that's why we continue to do that. And it helps that you have this longevity. So there's historical, you're right. You can do forecasting perhaps better than other companies because you have 
you know, consistent. We've done it for so long. It's it's part of the fabric of what the organization is. So we know that we have, we we do have an immense amount of stock. We make sure of that. We have large sizes. If folks order stuff that is, we probably embellish. We've got uh, a full art team. So we've got DTF direct to film printers. That, and we have automatic screen printing systems, right? If you remember the old screen printing days, it took half a day to make a screen. And the chemicals that you, our screen, we can burn a screen in, in less than nine minutes. We can apply 26 or 2,800 screen prints to a garment in an hour. Wow. So we've invested a lot in, because 85% of everything we do is decorated. People like that brand identity. So we want to make sure that we can do that. If you don't want it and you just want a blank, that ships out. If you order by three o'clock in the afternoon, it ships out that same day because we have the stock. Let's get it out the door. That's such a good service. So the dealers can just send along. They basically are just passing on the order. You'll decorate it, ship it out to their customer. Is Absolutely. that a, what do they call it? Then it, it's got like the dealer's name on the label? It, no, we no. we are kicking that around for certain um, certain market segments that we for a lot. service, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we do drop ship for some larger organizations. It, yeah. it makes sense, right? If they're ordering 15, 20,000 uniforms or need something out, of course, <laughs> yeah. we're doing that. But most of the time, a lot of our smaller distributors or, or screen printers will want to decorate it themselves. That's yeah. their skill. That's the value the add they're offering. Yeah, absolutely. But then some of them look at it and go, son of a gun. You mean I can have it at almost the same time? I can have this. You can decorate these shirts and have them out the door in three days for me. Why not just have you do it? Right. And we do it. That's a skill set that we're, we have. And that's one of the things we lean back on. So, yeah. I, I don't know if you have kids, nieces, nephews, uh, friends, relatives, neighbors. Would you recommend this industry, the either the reflective industry or the uniform industry to young people, what's your impression of our industry and its future and working in it? Yeah. And I have all the above. I have four kids <laughs> that range from 18 to 25, all much smarter than me and the nieces and the nephews. And I absolutely would recommend the uniform industry to folks coming out of school. I didn't come from the uniform industry. I was in the safety industry. My first taste of it was running the Scotch light reflective apparel or Scotch light department at, at 3M for North America and Latin America and the sales part of that. So that was my first taste. And honestly, I thought, I don't get this market. This is everybody knows each other. I feel like an outsider. It was odd. Once I stepped in here and after my four years of running reflective apparel, I would, I would once again say to Rick, yes, absolutely. I'd recommend it. I think it offers, I think it offers really diverse opportunities because as a salesperson, you're thinking walking in a door, having a presentation, showing somebody the value of the garment or why they would want to use a uniform but it, there's so much more to it. It's design, technology, marketing, sustainability. There's so much tied to this market. It's not somebody cutting and sewing a shirt for somebody. There's all, so much more, right? It's a fully dynamic field. It, 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 it evolves fashion, innovation, industry needs. I was in Brazil for some meetings and met with a company that they're using nanotechnology that's micro-encapsulated into fabrics. So they brought me to this little room and they showed me where 
they put down this white fabric and they gave me mustard and ketchup and blueberries. And I ground all of this stuff into it and you picked it up and it rolled right off. Uh, uh-huh. And one of their concerns also was the Zika virus transmitted with mosquitoes working in the rainforest. So there's micro encapsulation of nanotechnology with insect repellent to keep people safe. This industry is not just fabric, right? It's so much more. I think it provides a chance to uh, contribute. You know, these, these folks can come from school, contribute fresh perspectives, embrace innovation, make impacts on safety, functionality, style. I, I would offer advice to everybody to say, as you come out of school, no matter what you want to do, but especially with this industry, embrace innovation and sustainability. That's mm-hmm. what we constantly hear, right? From all of the folks part of NAUMD, that's what you see so much on the articles that are posted on LinkedIn and the magazines that, that, that we get. It's innovation, sustainability, technology integration, eco-friendly materials. All of this is going to is really going to come to head in uniforms. And I, I think that folks coming out of school with that type of thought behavior, the, the sky's the limit if they get into the uniform segment. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I really like it. I love your passion. I love the enthusiasm. They want to see that you're serious about doing something in the world and that how will I fit into that, right? It's not just how much will I make or what will I be doing or what, but what is it that this company does that, you know, that's serious about the world? And, you know, that resonated with me because, because we are solving some really interesting problems in the world right? We're not just making apparel and hoping that we're picking the right Pantone color and that you will pick it up (laughs) off of the counter at the Gap. That's great. We all have to wear clothes throughout our day as well, but we're really being asked to solve some very interesting challenges of keeping people safe. You pointed out some great ones about, and especially coming off a pandemic, it's, well, you know, could apparel just simply save everyone's lives, not just, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, not just the firefighter. (laughs) No, absolutely. You're right. It's, I I think, and and as you say that, I just keep a picture like this intersection, right? There's fashion, there's functionality, those questions that you asked earlier, safety standards, if you tend to be in that, in, in, in this segment, that is what's going to set these folks apart in this industry. If they come into this industry is to take all of that and take these problems and issues we have, what, what, you know, the waste issue. What do you do with this stuff? I mean, everybody's starting to switch to recycled materials. That's fantastic, right? But that should be so common. That should be made easier and easier for folks like me, like my competitors, to be able to get a hold of that stuff. That, that th- These are the type of problems and issues, to your point, that these folks are coming out of school saying, we need to, we want to solve something. We want to fix something. We want to make something better. And that's what needs to happen. I love that. Yeah, very good. Wow. As I said at the beginning, it was going to be easy to have a conversation with you, Scott, and you did not disappoint (laughs) me. I thank you so much for for joining us today on The Uniformer. Absolutely. Had a pleasure. We really appreciate you. Let me talk a little bit and talk about reflective apparel a little bit and uh, really appreciate it. (music) 